Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we pre-bunk your brain with weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, from the Frontiers of Science Forum, you'll hear the second part of the audience asking questions from epidemiologist Professor Robert Boy, mathematician Dr Anna Romanov, analytical chemist Dr David Bishop, and radiation physicist Associate Professor Susanna Guatelli. But first, here's news of how to fight misinformation. Pre-bunking. What people need to protect themselves against propaganda and misinformation is a metaphorical inoculation. Not against the lies themselves but by teaching people to easily and quickly recognise the manipulation techniques that are used to spread misinformation. There will always be new lies, but there are a limited number of effective manipulation techniques, and when you learn to spot them, they no longer fool you. This is the finding of a team from Cambridge University who've developed short videos to explain the manipulation methods and give a quick, non-political example. They call their mental armour technique pre-bunking. The Cambridge University team developed five short videos that inoculate people against five manipulation techniques commonly used in misinformation. Emotionally manipulative language, using emotional words, especially ones that evoke negative emotions such as fear or outrage, increases the potential of social media content to be widely shared and go viral. This use of negative emotional words to manipulate people is sometimes referred to as fear-mongering. For example, The judge issued a disgusting ruling today. If this doesn't make your blood boil, you're not human. You might think about skipping this ad. Don't. What happens next will make you tear up. Kidding! You just got tricked. When online, you're likely to see content that is loaded with emotional language. Appealing to emotions like fear or outrage is a trick to get you to pay attention and is key for the spread of ideas through social networks. Say you're trying to manipulate your readers to click your headline. You'd pepper it with emotionally charged words. Instead of a serious accident, call it a horrific one. If a ruling is disagreeable, call it disgusting. When you see highly emotional statements, remember, don't be manipulated. Incoherence. When someone uses two or more arguments to make a point, that can't logically all be true at once. It's a technique most commonly seen in longer discussions about a particular, usually very polarising, topic. For example, There's no such thing as scientific consensus. The issue is still actively debated in the scientific community. Only a few brave scientists dare go against the grain. They're our heroes, and they should be celebrated. Groundbreaking new research shows that anybody who closes a video ad within the first five seconds is most likely to watch online advertising all the way through. Go on, think about that totally coherent statement for just a couple of seconds. Incoherence, noun. The quality being illogical or inconsistent. If your goal is to defend a position at all costs, 
it doesn't really matter whether your reasons for doing so form the coherent whole, because most people won't notice anyway. It's much easier to use the most convenient argument at hand, even if this argument and a different argument you made earlier cannot both be true at the same time. It's useful to be on the lookout for such incoherent arguments. Being incoherent means being wrong. The Earth cannot be flat and round. If someone is using both arguments at different times, they are the ones who are confused, not you. Incoherence can be difficult to spot in real time, as people often don't make incoherent arguments in the same sentence. Truth Labs. Keep coherent and carry on. False dichotomies, or false dilemma, is a logical fallacy in which a limited number of choices or sides are presented as mutually inclusive, when in reality, more options are available. It's also known as the either-or fallacy. For example, If you're not with us, you're against us. Either you stop watching the lamestream media, or you want all puppies to die! Makes sense, right? No? Good, because it shouldn't. It's a common manipulation technique called a false dichotomy, or a false dilemma. It's designed to make you think you only got two choices to choose from, when in reality, there are more. As with our little dilemma at the beginning, there's no reason why you can't watch mainstream media and want all puppies to live. The two don't rule each other out. And by presenting you with an option that is clearly undesirable and the option the manipulator wants you to pick, your choices are narrowed down for you. A famous example of a false dilemma is this one from Star Wars Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith. My allegiance is to the Republic, to democracy! If you're not with me, then you're my enemy. Anakin's claim that Obi-Wan is either with him or is his enemy is a clear case of false dichotomy. Obi-Wan is trying to prevent Anakin from joining the dark side, which naturally involves being critical of Anakin's choices. But just because Obi-Wan disagrees with Anakin doesn't automatically make them enemies. Obi-Wan's reply is actually perfect. Only a Sith deals in absolutes. Good old Obi! Be on the lookout for instances of false dichotomies in real life. They're more common than you think. Truth Labs, when things are too black and white, dare to be gray. Scapegoating, when a person or group is singled out or takes unwarranted blame for a particular problem. Scapegoating is commonly seen throughout history, but it remains common even today. For example, The reason voter turnout is low is because, insert generation here, refuses to go out and vote. If this ad fails to get enough views, I, your humble voiceover artist, will be fired. And it'll be because of ad skippers like you. <gasps> How could you? How am I gonna pay for Cujo's next pedicure? <laughs> Sorry. What I did to you there was take a complex problem, like how hard it is to get people to view ads, and singled out a specific group such as ad skippers as being entirely responsible. This is a common tactic called scapegoating. Wikipedia says it comes from the Bible. Of a pair of goats, one would be ritually sacrificed and the other, the scapegoat, would be released into the wilderness, metaphorically carrying with it people's transgressions and sins. Imagine there's an alien invasion. Some people might be tempted to use scapegoating to avoid being held responsible. But it's unlikely that a single individual, group, or goat is solely to blame. Here's an example of scapegoating from South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. The children of South Park have started swearing prodigiously, in desperate need of someone or something to blame. The town's parent teacher association finds a scapegoat. 
changed. Our kids are getting worse. They won't obey their parents. They just want to fight and curse. Should we blame the government or blame society? Or should we blame the images on TV? No, blame Canada. Blame Canada. For the beady little eyes and flapping heads are full of lies. So if someone tries to make a complicated problem look simple by placing blame on a single group, they're most likely trying to manipulate you. True labs. Blame is fine when it's fair. And ad hominem attacks. When someone attacks the person making an argument instead of addressing the argument itself. Ad hominem attacks are commonly used to redirect the listener away from the subject at hand and towards an individual. They can be, but aren't necessarily fallacious, as in some cases, messenger credibility is relevant to the argument at hand. For example, Judith wrote a long criticism of my work, but I see no need to defend myself against alcoholics. So, he's done brilliantly. Play on, says the referee. Oh, it's going to be a penalty kick for the Italians! What an idiot! He should get his eyes checked! He's been bribed! He's been bought by the Mafia! In sports, as in life, it's easy to get emotionally involved. But sadly, the Bad News Corp have taken things too far. Staff watching the game resorted to name-calling, accusations of bribery, and made jokes about the ref's heritage. This is a manipulation tactic known as an ad hominem attack, which means against the person in Latin. The reason that we refer to this tactic by its Latin name is probably because even as far back as ancient Rome, people were aware that attacking the questioner rather than the argument is unfair. Sometimes, of course, it is relevant to note someone's past experiences. Like imagine a tobacco company putting out a study saying that smoking can't cause you harm. Should we question the character and motive here? I think so. But instead of attributing blame in such a deserved way, sadly, ad hominem attacks are commonly used to draw attention away from the issue at hand and manipulate your impression of the person instead. I can't believe what I'm hearing. Well, then you better turn up your hearing aid, Pops. Pops? I'm only two years older than you. Do we want old man Patterson here with his finger on the button? What button? What the hell are you talking about? What, 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 what button? Where am I? Who took my false teeth? <laughs> You'll be surprised how often people attack a person or group rather than the argument itself. Truth Labs. Just because they get personal doesn't mean you have to. I edited the videos a little to eliminate references to things on screen you can't see on radio or a podcast. The Cambridge researchers conducted seven pre-registered studies. A pre-registered study is one where the researchers have registered the hypotheses, methods and analysis of a scientific study before it's conducted. This is done to prove they haven't moved the goalposts. If the study produces data different to what the researchers expected. It's part of making sure research is conducted with integrity, in the same way as randomised control studies and peer review of published papers. The pre-registered studies were composed of six randomised control studies involving over 6,000 people, and a realistic or ecologically valid field study on YouTube involving over 22,000 people. They found that these videos improve people's ability to recognise manipulation techniques being used on them, boost people's confidence in spotting manipulation techniques, increase people's ability to be able to work out trustworthy from untrustworthy content, and improve the quality of their sharing decisions. 
they found that the results applied across the political spectrum and with a wide variety of people. I strongly suggest watching all five videos and then watching the One Nation Party's Pauline Henson Explains YouTube channel, where you can spot all of these manipulation techniques being used in their latest misinformation video, which scapegoats people with a disability, uses negative emotional language, incoherence, false dichotomies, and ad hominem attacks on the Prime Minister and the Minister for the National Disability Insurance Scheme. The paper was titled, Psychological Inoculation Improves Resilience Against Misinformation on Social Media, and was published in the journal Science Advances. Listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. This is the second and final part of the question and answer session I hosted at the Frontiers of Science Forum 2023 at Concord Golf Club. Put on by the New South Wales Teachers Guild the Australian Institute of Physics, and the Royal Chemical Institute. Out the front answering their questions were epidemiologist Professor Robert Boy, mathematician Dr Anna Romanov, analytical chemist Dr David Bishop, and radiation physicist Associate Professor Susanna Guatelli. Here's the rest of the questions and answers. Hi, wonderful talks from all of you. I have three questions for three of the speakers today. Uh, I'll start with Professor Boy. Um, yeah, uh, so you were talking about this COVID and all the pandemic issues and that it goes and there is a mutation. So it happens one from another and then it mutates, it becomes a new generation of disease. And you are also talking about, I think, four types of uh, using of the, what's that called, the vaccination. vaccination. Yes. So I was thinking, why this is four times and why this is not like, or is there a chance that we have to do it for every year once because they're mutating and they're generating new things that we don't know what um, Let me answer in fairly simple terms because I like to think in simple terms. We've gone through the Greek alphabet and we've missed a few along the way. And what we've essentially had is every six months for two years, a new variant that escaped immunity to the old one and therefore infected new um, uh, reams of people. For the last 16 months, we haven't really had a new variant. We've had sub-variants. We've had variations on the theme. Um, but as virologists uh, uh, are stating, it's not different enough um, to cause major disease, but different enough to evade immunity and to cause new outbreaks. So we've had four different peaks in the last year and a bit of Omicron. Each one has been less. And there, that then leads me to my second um, explanation, which is that although it's evaded immunity, it's done so less well because each peak in numbers has been less. And the death rate has also uh, gone down. The, the death rate for the first two peaks was very high. 15,000 Australians last year 
is a lot of Australians. The great majority of them were over 80 years of age, by the way. Um, and to your third part of the question, uh, where, you know, how often should we chase this virus? Less often, and just like flu, once a year should probably be enough, and that's what I've been recommending for a while. Um, and uh, at the same time as flu, and, in, in, and there will soon be a vaccine where it's mixed in the same syringe, um, and that's been developed, it's being tested at the moment. Um, and if I'm allowed to say one more thing, coronavirus and influenza virus are both RNA. They're very sim simple in some respects. But coronavirus has, has a, a check enzyme called a polymerase, which does ensure that its progeny are more like the parents than the progeny of flu. So flu mutates faster, and we only vaccinate newly for that once a year. So I can see us probably getting very quickly to the stage of only v having a new booster for corona once a year. Just to add to this, uh, I had gone through fire influenza in the last two years, once a year, and coronavirus only one time. And coronavirus thing was the one, the COVID, I felt like nothing happened to me. And the parents was that I thought I'm going to die. <laughs> anyway, my next question is to uh, Anna. Um, so you were talking about, I, my question is uh, almost a uh, similar thing that the other person asked. Um, what about when you are talking about the equal sign? What about the equivalent sign? And what about the nearly equal to sign? Oh, you mean the other shape? So it's sort of the squiggly equals. Um, I could have used any of those signs, really, I should say. Uh, the, there's nothing especially special about the straight-lined equality. In fact, usually in mathematics, what we would use is a straight line with a curly line on top. That's our normal thing for isomorphic or homeomorphic or any of these words that mean equals in different settings. So the, the symbol itself is not quite as important. It's just the notion of equality. And we're actually not consistent as mathematicians. We change our symbols in that context all the time. Sometimes it's one squiggly line. Sometimes it's two. Sometimes one straight and one squiggly. It's a little bit frustrating if you're a student. <laughs> Thank you. And the last question is for Professor David. Uh, you were talking about the Parkinson's disease and the uh, finding mercury at a particular point of our brain. Um, so could you please tell a bit more about it, like how much uh, mercury and which part of the brain and if we can know okay. So the reason, the part of the brain where mercury is found amongst all samples, so that was people with Parkinson's, people without Parkinson's and people with non-mercury exposure, it's called the locus ceruleus. So, again, I'm not a biologist, but it's my understanding it's at the, basically where the brainstem, in, in the brainstem, so um, entrance into the brain. So that, all, all samples we analysed had mercury there. But the Parkinson's people, that, that's where we found mercury in substantia nigra. We were hearing about dopamine there, the dopamine cell death. It occurs in substantia nigra. We only found mercury there in the Parkinson's patients. There's a few other regions of the brain pontine facial neuron and the lateral geniculate nucleus. Yeah, so, you know, so, so I'm not a biologist, I'm not going to pretend to be. The, the, the regions of the brain which were directly impacted by cell death in Parkinson's, we found mercury there. We did not find mercury there in the other samples, including people like one of the, our tests, our controls, is someone who injected themselves with mercury for six months. So we know that person had mercury in their system 
He's positive control. So, yeah. Okay. Oh, we've got one over here. Yeah. Um, hi. First, I would like to say that, um, you know, the company that I work for um, has a value which says you should not be the smartest person in the room, like for any meeting. So I can say that I'm living the value today. So, <laughs> so I loved every talk and uh, this is the first time I've attended this forum. So thank you all of you. Uh, my question is more of an engineering and I was talking to Professor David earlier, is that you know, in the mass spectrometer, there is a plasma and obviously it's, it's really, really high temperature and a surface of the sun probably vaporize almost every material that we have on earth. So why doesn't the whole apparatus not just uh, vaporize with that? Yeah, so thanks for your question. So the plasma is very well controlled. There's a defined radio frequency coil, which produces the energy required to ionize the argon. There's a high flow of argon surrounding the torch where the plasma is produced to keep the argon, to keep the plasma confined to a specific region. And then when it hits the, only the very tip of the plasma, which is the coolest part of the plasma, hits the actual interface of the mass spec. So it needs to actually touch it to create a, basically a vacuum. So we don't get outside stuff coming into the mass spectrometer. And that is either made of actually metals like um, platinum or nickel. So platinum's actually quite soft, but it's water-cooled. So it's, it's flushed with water, which is you know, temperature of four degrees. That's, that flow has to be quite high to make sure that the interface to mass spectrometer stays quite cool. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, Hazan, just a question for Susanna. Yeah. In relation to the, um, the trip to Mars. Yeah. And there's a potential, I understand, to by utilising new propulsion methods to reduce the transit times yeah. by up to 75% uh, or less than what it is now, okay. I think using nuclear power. But um, have you heard any rumours to that effect? And no. Is it likely to happen? Uh, sorry, this is uh, not uh, my field of research, so I'm a, a little bit... I know, I know there is a lot of research in that, but I would not feel too comments. I'm not uh, an expert, sorry. Okay. Just another question yeah. to um, Professor Boy in relation to mosquitoes. You haven't mentioned mosquitoes as a, uh, a venue for um, transmitting viruses. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Um, there's a whole bunch of diseases that are currently a major concern in Australia, like Japanese encephalitis, Murray Valley encephalitis, which are transmitted uh, in the environment because we've suddenly got lots of still water in southern for extended periods and the temperature is warmer. So the mosquitoes love the water and then they bite the macropods, the wallabies, um, uh, in which the virus um, uh, then uh, accumulates. And then there are mammals which get bitten, like horses and pigs, which massively amplify virus. They get much higher levels of viremia. And then when they get bitten by mosquitoes and they're in uh, close habitation with humans, piggery workers, um, horse trainers and the like, they can get... Uh, these nasty viruses that formerly were only in the very north of Australia. Murray Valley encephalitis, although it's named after the Murray Valley, is mainly in northern Australia. Japanese encephalitis used to never go past uh, Cairns if it was lucky. 
It's usually in the Torres Strait Islands. And suddenly, in the last two years, these viruses are all down the East Coast and over to South Australia uh, and a real concern. And it could be because we've had uh, La Nina for three years and a lot of water and a lot of mozzies and the mosquitoes are, 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 are crucial. Can I just say that uh, that question about going to Mars, the Epstein Drive, haven't you seen the, the TV series? <laughs> and we've got a question here. My question is to Anna. Um, to what degree of certainty can you say things are equal? So there's some uncertainty, I guess, and there's the, the concept of the um, known unknowns and the unknowable unknowns and all those sorts of things that which may um, fit into that answer. So, yeah, I'm just interested if you've looked at that sort of end of equality. Yeah, so one lovely thing about pure mathematics is that we don't deal with the physical world. <laughs> um, and so since all of these ideas are sort of concepts in our minds, um, if we declare our notion of equality to be for topological surfaces or something, that we can continuously morph one into another, to show that two things are equal, we have to find some way that we can do this. But once we find it, it's there. So there's not this issue of sort of measurement uncertainty uh, in, in the realm of pure mathematics. So we know things are equal if we can find sort of a, an equal a, a quality map between them, which takes us from one to the other. Um, and this is something, if we were actually physically making the spheres or the knots, this gets a little bit more subtle because you can ask questions, at least with, the, um, with deforming things, you sort of have to take measurements. But since all of this just is happening in our heads, um, we have a pretty concrete idea. Okay, we're, we're getting close. We've got one over here. Uh, another question for Robert Boyd. Um, uh, uh, the the um, pandemic has uh, made me think how important the job of epidemiologists are. And I read this quote from uh, a, um, uh, a notable virologist in the history of virology in America, Hans Zinner, and, and Zinza, I should say, and he was a, a soldier in the First World War. And he said that soldiers have uh, rarely won wars. They more often mop up after the barrage of epidemics. And Typhus, with its brothers and sisters, plague, cholera, dysentery, has decided more campaigns than Caesar, Hannibal, Napoleon, and all the inspector generals in history. How much have soldiers mopped up afterwards, considering that the Spanish who came kind of towards the end of the First World War, and how much do you think that human, uh, the whole course of human kind has kind of been more driven by epidemics than war? Well, uh, you're probably right. I mean, during the war, the Great War, there was trench fever, there was, um, uh, in the walking through, and they, they were losing their legs to infection. Uh, there was salmonella, um, cholera, um, Typhus, I think you might have mentioned. Uh, there was countless diseases killing people uh, at the front. Um, so, yeah, I concur. <laughs> oh, and epidemiologists are just amateur mathematicians. So they'd like to be in a, in a better, better place, and one day they'll be mathematicians. <laughs> OK, so do we have another question, or is that...? 
Uh, We've got an urgent request. Yeah, thanks. Um, a quick one for Anna. In your uh, topological mathematics, is there a role for multivalent logics? Do you have things that are not just equal or not equal, but you've got multiple yeses and noes? Do you have a multivalent logic role in topology? Not that I know of in topology, but I could certainly imagine this having a place in other areas of mathematics. I mean, especially in logic, which in some sense is an area of mathematics. Um, but I, yeah, I couldn't imagine how it would manifest in topology. It's sort of an interesting question. Maybe it's something to dream about. <laughs> I think you should have just answered, I'm afraid not. Missed <laughs> 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 opportunity. <laughs> Thank you very much for your participation tonight. Same time next year? Okay, same time next year, same place. And uh, have a very safe weekend and um, enjoy yourself. Thank, Thank you. That was the last part of the question and answer session of the 2023 Frontiers of Science Forum. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2 MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com that's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show if you enjoyed the show you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf or Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, 
you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. <laughs>